Welcome, friends, to the Lunch Lady Podcast, a place for interesting conversations with extraordinary people. I'm your host, Louise Bannister. Support for this podcast comes from ethical tween label Real Pretty Kind. Real Pretty Kind is a brand for 8 to 14-year-olds. They make rad streetwear for every type of body, and they're designed specifically to celebrate and empower tweens and how much they rock. One of our fave tees from their range says, you can sit with us, and was made to combat anti-bullying. Founder Katie Rockliffe consults on everything she makes with her tweenage daughter, making sure the brand remains authentic and relevant to their many followers. For more info on this brand, head to their website, realprettykind.com, or hit them up on Insta at realprettykind. Our interview today is with Sarah Ockwell-Smith. Sarah is a mother of four teenagers and author of 11 parenting books. Her most recent book, Between, is about the tween years. Sarah uses biology, psychology, and the sociology of adolescence to explore how we as parents can best support our kids in the transition from childhood to adulthood. As a parent of a tween, I learn a lot in this chat, and I hope you do too. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Lunch Lady podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, It's very exciting because... um, as I've mentioned in your intro to this piece, I am the parent of a tween. So speaking to someone who isn't somewhat of an expert is very exciting to me. <laughs> Thinking, <laughs> what gold? What gold will she do, divulge? What What can I learn from this? No yes. pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure, Sarah. But uh, what do you got for us? No. So let's start with. You've written a lot of books. You've written eleven. What was started the interest in writing about parenting? So um, many, many years ago now, so was it 16 years ago, after my third baby arrived, I trained to be an antenatal teacher just because I had had horrendous births with my first two. And then um, my third baby came along and I learned hypnobirthing, which at the time nobody had heard of. And I decided to train in that myself and then later trained as a doula and an infant massage teacher. So I was seeing you know, I don't know, 50 parents a month were expectant or brand new parents every month. And then I was like preparing them really well for birth, but then they would come back to me afterwards and say, please help, you know, baby's not sleeping or the baby's got colic or, you know, what can we do? And the more I kind of spoke to them, the more I realized that there wasn't much out there for new parents at the time postnatally. And the books that were out there were all the, you know, the, the really scary, very routine led, very authoritarian um, not particularly child-friendly books. And I found it really hard to find something to recommend to them. So it kind of reached the point where everybody's like, yeah, you should just write your own. And it was it was something I never intended to do. It just happened all really organically. Oh, that's wonderful. And how did you – so so you you go to write your own book and were you sort of – you know, usually when you go to write things, you're kind of like, oh, do, do I have the uh, experience behind me? Obviously, you're a mother. Do I have the – research behind me did you think were you thinking about that at the time or were you sort of just like no I've learned some stuff and I'm going to share it um yeah I mean I have huge imposter syndrome so I still worry about that but (laughs) um, so my degree is in psychology and I worked for five years in clinical research in pharmaceuticals so I'm really good at reading the science and making sense of it so I'm okay there and I think, you know, actually, my worst thing is I I've, have always been terrible at English and writing, you know, at school, I always did really badly at it. And I think that was the worst thing, you know, my grammar is shocking. 
the knowledge I was okay with and the lived experience. I've got four kids. I have worked with thousands of parents. So I was all right on that. But the, the actual writing skills, I think, was the most scary. Oh, that's, a, that's I, I love that story because, you know, I've been an editor for 20 years and sometimes I'm embarrassed at what I, uh, at what I still produce. Thank you for editors. Yeah. You know, editors kind of make sense of what I've written and make it sound as if I'm quite clever. Yeah. But, oh, that, that's, that's so good. Tell us about your own parenting experience. You're the parent of four kids, is that right? Yeah, so... It was really tricky. I think when I had my firstborn that I sort of got swept along in the wave of doing what was fashionable at the time. So we're talking early 2000s and it was all, I don't know if you guys have heard of Gina Ford over there, but it was basically just Gina Ford everywhere. Um, And a lady called Tracy Hogg, the late, I think she's, she's died sadly quite some time ago, but she wrote, she was the baby whisperer. So I used to watch and stupid Annie on TV. So they were, they were kind of, that was what I read and that was what I watched. And at the time, that was what everybody in my antenatal group was doing. And I had the baby that didn't sleep unless you held them. Uh, I had the baby that had no routine. And it instinctively felt really nice and, you know, right to me to just be really child-led. But everything in the society at the time was screaming at me, you know, this is wrong. Your child should sleep through the night. Your child shouldn't need you to hold them to sleep. And it was, for me, it was like a real battle of what my instinct was telling me and then what everybody in all the books and all the TV shows was telling me to do. So it was actually retrospectively a really horrible time, a really difficult time because I felt like I was doing something wrong. Even though now I look back and think, you know, I was just doing it right. I was giving him all the love and the nurturance that he needed. It was just I found myself in a time in society where nobody was advocating for that. So, yeah, it was quite tricky. That's so interesting because I read Gina Ford too for my first and I totally regret it as well. And I, you just lose sense with your instinct, don't you? It's kind of, you know, so much. Why do you think, why do you think that was so beat back then? Why, why was, is that just the trend in parenting came around or, you know, why was it so controlling and. It's still huge. You know, she still outsells me in the UK where we're both from. Um, but what's interesting, if you sort of trace back through the last 100 years and you look at what was happening politically and economically, it very much aligns with the child rearing. So, you know, the big shift towards a sort of um, patriarchal sort of male expert or childless expert and advocating for strict routines and less nurturance kind of really started at the time of the industrial revolution over 100 years ago because I think we really needed people to work and not stay home and nurture their kids and that's kind of changed you'll see the cycles happening you know in the in the end of the second world war when we really started to learn about attachment theory with people like Bowlby and Ainsworth their work started because of children who were orphaned during the war or children who were um, sent away as refugees during the war. But what was really interesting is because we so desperately needed to build back things after the war and get the economy working again, despite everything we knew about the attachment, we still carried on in a very authoritarian way. And I think things started to get a little bit better in the 60s and 70s when there was like Dr. Spock and the the hippie movement and stuff. And things were a little bit more relaxed and natural. And then the 1980s happened with, you know, all of the consumerism. And in the UK, we have Margaret Thatcher as our prime minister, who was very harsh and very authoritarian. And then we kind of flipped back to those experts who tell you to not hold your baby too much. And and, and that's stark, really. I think the more we're sort of focusing on building 
building our society and the economy and commercialism and getting mums, particularly mums, back out to work to make money as soon as possible, the more we have these people who tell us how to make our babies so-called independent from us and not need us so much. The big shift that's happening recently is there is much more awareness in science and sort of evidence to to show us which is the right way, which we didn't have so much of last century. So I think you know I think there's a general shift in a lot of people say like the woke society or like the age of Aquarius or like any, any other sort of spiritual name you want to give it, but I think there is a slow general shift to being more aware and more I don't know respectful of nature and stuff like that. So hopefully. Yeah. Yes. Ten years time, there'll be more of a shift, but who and knows? So you must see, you must see the consequences of the children that were reared in in those eras where it was very strict and very sort of commercially driven. I suppose I would be a, although my mum was very nurturing, she was English. Well, she's English, so I remember her telling me no one breastfed, and that wasn't really encouraged, and definitely not in public. You were sort of made to feel a little bit of shame. I mean, has that changed mm-hmm. much now? That's really doing. That's a real sort of a commercialist point of view because you've got the the really dodgy marketing of the formula companies, and it's really hard to talk about it. And it's whenever you do, you'll always have somebody saying, "Oh, you're judging formula feeding mums." And you know what? I formula fed two of my babies. It's not about judging the individual parents. It's about talking about the really shady activities of the formula manufacturers and how they advertise. Like in the UK, one of our biggest formula milk manufacturers runs our biggest free breastfeeding helpline. And there's something really wrong with that when you're struggling with breastfeeding and you're ringing up a formula company to get advice. And obviously it's in their interest to make sure the breastfeeding fails so that they sell more of their milk, you know. And there's things like they make hungry baby milk or um, like next stage milk because they're sort of insinuating that when you have a toddler, they still need formula, um, not just free or cheap cow's milk. um, Or if they're not sleeping well, what you need is to buy this even more expensive milk that we make. So it's all, all of it is rooted in making money, but it sort of spills over into our society. And we, we get these like the, the, the guilt or the judgmental or the mummy wars, but they're all created by the formula companies. That's the really tricky thing, I think. Yeah, that's, yeah, that is very tricky. So going back to sort of the, say the parents that were reared on that kind of strict upbringing and then now they're sort of becoming more aware and more following their instincts. Do you see that in um, the parents that you see, you know, that struggle between how they were raised towards how they want to raise their kids and the book that I'm working on at the moment, actually, it's like early next year, is exactly about that. It's called How to Be a Calm Parent. And it's basically all about our own upbringings and the baggage we bring to parenting. But if somebody's raised in an authoritarian, so quite a harsh manner, even if their parents were doing it because they read the books and TV programs and it felt wrong instinctively, but they, that's what they thought they had to do. What I tend to find is that they're going to parent either in one of two ways. They're either going to just kind of subconsciously carry on how they were raised. And, and that's, you know, the phrase, you open your mouth and your mum and your dad comes out um, and you discipline what I would call unmindfully, just because if you yourself got told off or punished for doing something, we somehow seem to think that we must do punish our kids for doing the same thing. So either they will kind of subconsciously follow that cycle and you see these cycles just going through generations and generations until somebody was like, 
you know, this isn't what I want to do and they'll change it. Or what I really commonly see in the sort of the gentle or the attachment parenting community, if people were raised in an authoritarian manner is they try everything possible to do things differently and they end up actually being quite permissive because they know what it was like to be raised in such a way with, you know, the, the fear and the punishment and children must respect adults and whatever and they don't want to raise their child like that so they're actually afraid to discipline and they kind of have no discipline and no boundaries and they're too soft because they just don't want to make their child upset so generally that's the people that I work with because they're already people who know they want to make a change but they tend to stray off down the permissive path and avoid discipline in case it upsets their child, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about your so your your most recent book, um, your 11th book is called Between, and it's you've written about the age between eight, eight and 13-year-olds. What has been yeah. your own personal experience in writing about this age group? Because I know you've got teenagers. Yeah, so my four now, I have a 14, 16, 17 and a 19 year old. You know, when you've got four kids, you have to take a breath and think, how old are they again? (laughs) I think that's how old they are. If they're listening, they may not be, but I think that's how old they are. Um, And I, when I write about something, I'm one of the people that just think I have to have personal experience of it. I I know loads of people say to me, why don't you write a book about twins or something? And I'm like, well, I don't have twins. And I think that would be quite disingenuous of me to write a book about them Mm. because I can have the the actual, the scientific information, but I can't add the personal touch. So I've always known I wanted to write about older children, but I've always wanted to get all of mine through that stage first. So it feels more authentic to me. So I wrote it, I started writing it when my youngest was 12. And she just turned 13 when it came out, just because I just thought, I think it's so important for me to get through this with with more than one child. So I I know, I don't know, just, you know, how it feels and the common behaviours that I've sort of observed from them and their friends and talking to friends who have kids of similar ages. But I think it's a really hard time. You know, if anybody's listening with babies or toddlers, it's always a bit scary to say, I actually think it gets harder as they get older. Or it gets different, you know, it's not as physically exhausting because they're sleeping through the night and you don't have to carry them everywhere and they can make their own drink or something. But emotionally, it is so much harder. You know, there's the phrase, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. Wow, that's true, yeah. And I've just, there were, for my kids, there always seemed to be a big shift that happened somewhere around the age of eight. And I know some people who talk about teenagers, they actually are talking about the 10 to 13 year olds, but I really think it starts at about eight. You know, that's when I started to see the sort of the, the difficulties and the issues appearing with my own kids. But yeah, I think there's just so desperately we need, there's so much advice for you when you have a, when you're pregnant, when you have a baby, when you have a toddler, and then there's nothing. It all just disappears. And it's like people think you know what you're doing. And you just don't. And I was like totally insane with my background. But when my kids were going through puberty, I found myself Googling, you know, what are the stages of puberty? What's normal? What should I expect? And thinking, this is crazy. Why why is there no information or help out there for parents at this point? Which is actually when I think we need it the most. Yes, 100% agree. This podcast is proudly supported by Ethical Tween Label, Real Pretty Kind. Real Pretty Kind is a brand for 8 to 14-year-olds. They make rad streetwear for every type of body. Everything in their range is designed to celebrate and empower tweens. For more info, head to realprettykind.com. 
what what were the differences that you noticed in raising your own twins? Like how different were they or were there a lot of sort of common similarities between them? So obviously I think all kids are unique. Um, so I would always, and I have three boys and one girl and I, I don't see, I know a lot of people like to sort of separate parenting into sort of gender specific boys and girls, but I just don't see that. There's no physiological reason for boys and girls to be different. Um, so what did I start to see? A little bit more answering back, <laughs> a little bit more refusing to do what I asked them to do, a bit more sort of cheekiness. Um, one, I think the big thing is that you start to, when they're little, you are like, you influence everything. You are their world. But as they get older, you start to see them moving away from you, as they sh- rightly should. But the impact of their friends and the greater society has plays much more of a role. And, you know, then you've got the difficulties if they have a friend that you don't like or isn't a good influence. Um, that, I think, definitely plays a part. And they're, they're sort of struggling to find who they're going to be, aren't they? And in order to do that, they have to slightly push you away a little bit. Yeah, the friends thing I find really interesting because I... I think at some at some level it triggers your own your own past. Obviously, the relationships you had as that kid, even maybe your relationships now, your own insecurities. Yeah. How do you not project your own shit <laughs> onto your kid when it comes to yeah their friendships? How do you? What's the fine line between not getting involved or getting involved when you need to? Yeah, so you know, I've tried always, and I think the only way forward is to really take a back seat as much as possible. Um, Warn them if there's something dangerous or if you think they're going to get really hurt, but that's all you can do. You can give them information. And I think ultimately they have to make their own decisions. Like you absolutely cannot stop your child being friends with somebody, however much of a bad influence you think they are, because they're just going to push back. Yeah. That will make that child more appealing or they'll be friends with them in secret or they will learn not to tell you if they have a a genuine difficulty with them later on so it's I think this is the biggest thing about them getting older is the fact that you can give them information but you have to trust them to make mistakes because if they don't make mistakes they're not going to learn you know you can't avoid them making all the mistakes you did because you wouldn't have learned without those mistakes and I think it's about being there and giving information advice if they want it and if they don't just biting your tongue which is so hard (laughs) that's really difficult isn't it especially when you yeah it's funny I just took a week a week away from my family and uh when I came back I just felt they were so much older and so much more responsible and I actually thought wow out of the way sometimes (laughs) and I think it is realizing that you can't wrap them up in bubble wrap you have to let them fail you have to let them experience pain you have to you know let them go through these difficult things because that is how they will learn and that is how they will grow. But our role is not to prevent it. It's be there to support them and pick up the pieces afterwards, I think. Yeah, totally. Which goes against all your instinct to protect them as a parent. Yes, it does. And sometimes I find myself rambling too, you know, over explaining things. And then I sort of think, oh God, I really went into that too much. How do I just not say as much, you know? trying to give them too much info and not trying to say I told you so you know one of my eldest um was the most difficult friendship and I he's one of his friends was just really really not good for him and it's funny you say talking about your past I see similarities between a friendship I had when I was younger that I now realize you know this person took way more than they ever gave me and it was quite toxic but I I saw my eldest had a friendship like that and it took until he was 17 
to realize and say to me, you know, mum, you were right. And I, I don't want to be friends with him anymore. Wow. That was, that was a hard 10 years while he realized it. And it's only yeah. when they realize it. What about, uh, one of, one of, I suppose, the challenges that I face is how do you get tweens to do things <laughs> like chores or, you know, without, you know, I, I really would love to say I don't offer dangle rewards, but it's just not true just mm. to kind of motivate sometimes. What, what would be your advice about chores and tweens? So I think you, I don't like the phrase, pick your battles, but I think it's true. You know, pick what you're really going to try and fight for. Um, sometimes I think it's better to just do something ourselves and model graciousness to them and realize they're not doing it, not because they're horrible, not because they don't appreciate me, just because they're a tween. And in their world, this is not important. <laughs> so sometimes yeah. if there's something that's a huge issue, I would say just just do it yourself. Yeah. Um, otherwise, there are things that you could let slide, like you will not win the battle of keeping the room tidy. Yes. Oh, okay, that's good to so know. I'm just going to give up. <laughs> you will utterly – so basically I have a few ground rules, which is that they do not build up a collection of dirty, smelly plates or glasses or cups or anything like that, and their rubbish has to be emptied once a week, and that's it. Yeah. So, you know, basic, like basic hygiene. Apart from that, that is their world, their environment. They have to treat it as they would like. And actually what's interesting is my kids have all started to sort of instinctively or naturally start to tidy up in their sort of mid to late teens when they realize that they can't find anything or they tread on things and it breaks. So they have to experience the natural consequences of not doing the tidying in order to be motivated to do the tidying. But they yeah. will never experience those natural consequences if we're always on at them to do it every week. Yeah, okay. Which okay. is why rewards and bribes don't work because you want them to do something because there's a drive inside of them to do it, either because they want to be a helpful member of the household or they want to help you out or, you know, something's messy and they don't like it. But the more you reward them, the more actually you're making them not do it in the future unless there is another bribe if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Just and what's interesting is yeah. tweens don't have very good levels of empathy. There's actually a, an empathy drop in the tween and teen years, which is really important because they have to they have to focus solely on themselves in order to work out who they want to be. And a lot of chores, actually, we would do them instinctively because of empathy for those of the people we live with and to know, you know, it's not fair that I leave everything to them. It's, you know, it's it's not fair that they do everything. But a tween literally does not see that because their empathy levels drop. So again, it's about understanding they're not being deliberately um, rude, disrespectful, unhelpful, lazy. This is just, you know, it's not their priority in their world and they don't really get how it's affecting you. Yeah. What about what about talking to tweens about about sex and uh, consent and and things like that? Even though they're quite they're still quite young, when's that conversation? I know I know you you know you've sort of talked before about starting that conversation around sex as, as early as possible. Can you share? Yeah, a bit so in an ideal world, it would be something you were just open and honest about when your kids were little. So if you have a three year old, say, where does a baby come from? I would be giving them a basic but biologically factually correct explanation um and you know if if you happen to be if you have your period if you're menstruating and your child is in the bathroom with you when you're changing your tampon your towel or your cup or whatever again that's a, a chance to have a conversation about it so the earlier you talk about it the less likely you are to have to have that awkward conversation when they're older but yeah. obviously I know some people haven't had that sort of open and honest like we we don't shut door when we go to the bathroom or anything if you haven't had that 
the next best step I would would be to for it to happen quite organically. So to answer their questions or to point something out, um, you know, as and when you see it, rather than one big sit down, this is how babies are made. This is sex. This is consent. Do you know what I mean? Like smaller, more natural conversations about a tiny bit. Like if you're watching a TV show or a movie or there's something on there, pick that chance to have just a quick couple of minutes conversation yeah. rather than one massive sit down one, which is awkward for everybody. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would, absolutely advocate um, whether you have a boy or a girl giving them a book about puberty from seven or eight so I know they're a good two or three years away from puberty but to have that in advance and say you know I think this is a good time for you to have this book Um, let me know if you've got any questions or if you don't want to talk to me maybe you can write it I've I've got a blank notebook here if you have any questions you can write them in here and now and again I'll write a reply back so sometimes they prefer that rather than having the conversation. The earlier, the better. And I also think it's really important that boys know about girls' puberty and vice versa. Like I'm not a big fan of books that are just for one sex. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Which is hard because actually people don't write books for both sexes, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, What about, what about screen time? Obviously that's the biggest issue. Uh, well, I suppose one of the biggest issues and the biggest differences between when we grew up. Um, yeah. I mean, it, you know, even Instagram releasing, you know, the social media app for over 13 or 13-year-olds, 13 I mean, it just blows yeah. my mind personally. But how can we sort of combat this? Um, I think I'm a bit more relaxed about screen time than most sort of other people working in this field. Like. Yeah. As you said, this is our life now. You can't get rid of it. This is yeah. their life. This is how they socialize, particularly in lockdown when everything was online. That was, you know, that was how they socialized and did everything. And I think it's really naive of us to think I want to try and replicate my tween and teen years because the world is so totally different now. You just can't. Yeah. So I think it's not about avoiding it. It's about being safe with it. So with things like Instagram or TikTok or well they don't really use Facebook but Snapchat and stuff like that I think respect the minimum age for each of them so with mine I was like you absolutely you can have it as soon as you're the actual age you need to be but you need to let me follow you yeah and you know and I will now and again like I don't snoop but now and again I'll just double check that they've not said or done something that could get them into trouble but in terms of like if you've got a child playing PC games or Xbox or PlayStation or something like that, I think it's again much more about it's okay to do it, but have boundaries to do it. So it could be you can't play it in the hour before bed. Your homework has to be done before you do it. And you might say, you know, on a school day, you can have it for an hour or two hours rather than just having no limits. Yeah. Yeah. But also to teach them about why you're having these boundaries and limits. So find videos that talk about I spent so long with mine talking about and showing videos of um, why people online aren't necessarily who they say they are and why there could be like a pedophile posing as a 13 year old and finding real life cases where that's happened online and showing them those videos to get them to understand that a little bit more and also to talk about like with screen time how it impacts your sleep um, how it can make your skin worse like that's 
when you talk about looks that appeals to them more interestingly so you know what we know from research is if you want to talk to a slightly older tween or teen about smoking it doesn't matter if you talk to them about you're more likely to get cancer or heart disease they kind of feel invincible at that age they don't have a good grasp of risk the way that you turn them off of smoking is to to say that it makes your acne worse and your skin looks really dull and it makes you have really smelly breath and people don't want to kiss you so there is research that shows that that has so much more of an impact on them than showing them pictures of cancerous lungs and so on. Yeah, that makes sense. What about independence and tweens? You know, what's the fine line between we talked earlier about boundaries, not having any boundaries or being too strict? What is that fine line? How, how, how much independence should you give them at, say, 9 or 10? Or Yeah, so it obviously entirely depends on the individual child. So with mine um, one of my children has ADHD so his independence has been much more restricted because we know that he would struggle to make those assessments himself but with the others who are neurotypical then they've had more independence earlier on but I think we we hover and we helicopter too much with children today if you think back to your childhood you know I don't know what yours was like but when I was eight or nine I was going out all day with my friends we would go on our bikes there were no mobile phones we would know where the phone box was if we needed to call home but I would have complete freedom and trust from my parents and we would just be together all day you know cycling around or walking around or playing out and we'd come in like five o'clock for dinner time And now people just don't let their kids do anything. I hear so many people with, um, in the UK, I don't know what it's like there, but our kids start high school or what we call secondary school at age 11. So it's really common when when parents sort of, I don't know, post on a mum or dad's Facebook group and say, well, when do you let your child out alone? The really common one is, oh, when they're 11, when they walk to school, to high school, but they won't let their eight or nine or 10 year olds out. And what's really interesting is if you look at the statistics on road traffic accidents that involve tweens as a pedestrian, like children being run over or struck by cars, they are much more likely to happen between the ages of 10 and 12 than they are between the ages of 8 and 10. Just because we seem to think that when they're 11, we can just let them out and they'll be safe. But if they haven't been doing it when they're younger, they literally don't have those skills. They're so less street savvy than we were as kids. Uh, So I think, you know, just to learn to trust them a bit more. The fact that they have maybe, if you've got a just, mine had really cheap mobile phones, like the the really basic pay-as-you-go, couldn't do very much on them that were just for emergencies. You know, pop them in your pocket so you can call us. But, you know, nine or a 10-year-old, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to go out alone, providing yeah. you've spoken about the risks with them, providing you can contact each other. I definitely notice, um, yeah, my nine-year-old asking to do more of that stuff, but also feeling like she's capable too. You know, it's almost like clicked over into that stage where I'm like, actually, you're going to be fine. Yeah. I'm going to go out for And half they learn to be more capable when we let them. And if we don't let them, they don't get more capable. You know, it's like <laughs> a bit of a vicious. <laughs> and it's, but it's, it's all about us and our fears. And everybody's like, but the world is so much worse than it was. And it isn't. You know, there are no more murderers. There are no more pedophiles than there were when we were children. Yeah, you just actually, hear about the world that. is not different. We've just got more media that's more in your face that makes us think there's more risk. Yeah, yeah, that's true. What um, I suppose just to finish off, what what's been what's the most surprising thing you think about um, when about parenting tweens? <laughs> that was a surprise. Surprising. <laughs> um, all of it. I think actually how enjoyable. I think that 
tweens and teens, if you're talking later, they have such a negative reputation in our society. I think the older children get, the, the less society likes them. And you're always sort of hearing horrible things about the youth of today and stuff like that, aren't you? And yeah. you know, there's always yeah. old people moaning about how disrespectful <laughs> older children are and stuff like that. And I just, for me, although it is absolutely the hardest stage, I think actually it was conversely also the most enjoyable like I really loved to see their personalities developing and developing more of a friendship with them and seeing who they are and that was I think quite surprising because you know when I had younger kids I always thought her older kids were horrible <laughs> just because yeah. that's always what you hear and see and just actually how amazing this new generation are how sort of fired up they are to change the world for the better and actually how far less selfish they are than yeah. perhaps we were and I think you know it is it's lovely and surprising but you almost don't see that until you're you're in that stage yourself and perhaps I, I often think perhaps it's just about figuring out how to talk to them because sometimes I think you know you obviously label label you know the oh the older kids they you know like you were saying before the old people grumble about them but maybe it's just because they've not really had a conversation or not known but also you know it's because they're forgotten they're forgotten being yeah. aged they're forgotten when they're kids though they've got these rose tinted glasses that they think everything was great and yeah. it's not at all you know if you again if you look at the research actually the kids today the best they've ever been they've got the sort of lowest levels of crime lowest levels of teen pregnancy lowest lim- um, levels of alcohol abuse lowest levels of smoking they're actually really great kids but I, th- I think we just get older and we forget what it's like to be that age and the, the two sort of most powerful tools parents or tweens can have is first of all just really try and remember how you felt at that age if your tween does something and you don't like the response think about how you felt at that age with a similar sort of thing happening we all know what we need because we've all been there yeah. and then what really gets me exciting now is that it, the sort of the more that we know in neuroscience we understand about brain development I gen like every every parent needs to understand what happens to their child's brain as they get older because 90% of what we complain about and moan about with difficult tween and teen behavior is just brain development you know we expect them to because they look like us because they're big and my boys are all massively taller than me they've got body hair they have body odor and <laughs> they look like adults you know and then we make the mistake of thinking because they look like adults that they should behave like adults. And we think they're like us because physically they are, but inside their brains, they are more like a toddler than they are us. Yeah. And yeah. if we can kind of understand and expect and accept that and just think, okay, this child who is massive and becoming more adult-like every day is more like the little toddler I had when they were two than they are me. And I think that just helps so much. They're just the resetting their expectations and realise they're not being deliberately rude. They're just being a, a, a tween with a tween brain. Oh, it's such a fine line, isn't it? Like even you just saying, um, you know, if you remember when you were a teenager, I just felt a, such an intense powerlessness and frustration yeah. and boredom, actually. I remember the intense boredom, but not in a good way. I know boredom's great for you, but too much for a But then you imagine also having that and a global pandemic at the same time. You yes. know, we need to give them a break. Yes. Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. One more question, actually. What about repairing with tweens? You know, you've made a mistake, you've yelled, you've said things you shouldn't. What about that repairing? I find that that's, uh, well, that's kind of big in our lunch lady world. You know, you can always go back and repair. You can always say sorry. Um, yeah, so it's the, the rupture repair cycle, isn't it? So when yeah. you lose it and when you do and say things that you don't want to when you think, oh, my goodness, why did I say that? You know, when you've calmed down and you realise 
actually I acted more like a child than they did. Yes. I think it's okay, but you need to go and make it right again. So you need to just go back and say, okay, I'm really sorry I shouldn't have shouted at you. And the punishment I gave you was ridiculously severe. And of course, I'm not going to take your Xbox away for the whole month or something like that. Or, if, you know, I'm sorry I shouldn't have said you can't go to your friend's party at the weekend. That was over the top. It's okay to go back on what you said. It's okay to say I was wrong. Yeah. Um, but it's really important to apologize because that's the only way that they learn what to do when we when they make a mistake. You know, they we're their greatest role model. If if somebody slips up and does something wrong, they need to know how to rectify it. So that's basically, you know, when we mess up, but then we go back and rectify it later, that's the greatest tool we could ever give them in order to deal with conflict and to, to apologize when you're wrong. If we don't do it, they don't learn how to do it, which actually it is a lovely thing to think about as an adult, which is, yeah, my screw ups are actually really vitally important for them. Yeah. And do your kids ever read your books and then use it against you? <laughs> um, no, but they do watch, sometimes watch my YouTubes and my Instagram videos and they've made me join TikTok because apparently <laughs> I should join TikTok and now they watch all of them and just, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> I do get that sometimes, oh, you're meant to be a parenting expert. You should know what you're doing and look at you or something. That's <laughs> I was going to say, you've got to get ripped somewhere along the line, don't you? It's so funny. Um, I don't know. One day maybe they'll read mine when they have their own kids. They'll probably read it and think, yeah, that's all wrong. <laughs> things have changed, Mum. Things have changed. I want to do things totally differently to me, which is, you know, it's their prerogative, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Oh, Sarah, that was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I look forward to hearing about your next book too. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, when I when I finish it, it's yeah. <laughs> the imposter syndrome is very big on this one. Oh, no, it sounds like you've got it down down pat now. Twelve books. That's lucky, lucky twelve. Oh, <laughs> thank you thank so you. much. It was lovely to chat. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. If you liked this conversation, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really liked it, be a legend and leave us a good review. Lunch Lady is a magazine where parenting is not taken too seriously, but a balanced approach to family life is. It's a beautifully printed kitchen keepsake full of recipes, inspiring family stories, DIY craft, and funny, relatable opinion pieces about the ups and downs of raising children. For more info on Lunch Lady magazine, head to shop.hellolunchlady.com.au.